Today I'm continuing my series through the book of Romans, and we're now up to Romans chapter 9. And uh, I tell you, I have covered some powerful, powerful things. I just think that this is one of Paul's greatest writings is on the book of Romans. He just outlines the gospel and makes it so clear. And uh, it's a shame, but today the gospel is not well understood. Matter of fact, there's many people who will claim that they're preaching the gospel and they aren't preaching anything that resembles what Paul preached. We've already covered through Romans chapter 8. I'm going to skip through a little bit of Romans chapter 9, not because it's unimportant, but again, if I was to just go through every single verse in this, this could turn into months and months worth of teaching. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul had talked about the victory that was ours in Christ. He had so totally discredited the Jews' belief that they had relationship with God because of their genealogy and because of their holy attitude and actions. And he had shown that, no, it's only justification by faith. You have to put faith in what Jesus has done for us and not what we do for Him. He had so totally made that point then in Romans chapter 9, he starts off by saying, he says, what am I saying? Are the Jews accursed? And he says, God forbid. You know, it's just like in the book of Romans chapter 6. He says, am I saying that you should continue in sin so that uh, grace may abound? God forbid. No, that's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying that the Jews were forsaken by God. He began to show that the Jews could also have a relationship with God, but not as a Jew. It's not because of their nationality. It's because of their personal relationship with Jesus, the Messiah. And he makes this point, and he comes down to the end of Romans chapter 9. And this is where I want to start. In verse 30, he had given some prophecies about how even in the Old Testament it was prophesied that the Jews as a whole would reject their Messiah and that he would turn to the Gentiles. And he listed a number of Old Testament scriptures that verified and prophesied that this would happen to show that he was not saying anything that was inconsistent with the Old Testament. And so in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, he says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it was by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And then he quotes another Old Testament passage of Scripture. In, uh, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. It says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So Paul gave these prophecies showing that in the Old Testament it predicted that the Jews as a whole would reject their Messiah and therefore salvation would turn to the Gentiles. And he says, so what am I saying? He says the Gentiles which weren't following after the law of righteousness. In other words, they weren't trying to keep all of the Jewish feasts. They weren't circumcising their children. They weren't observing all of the rituals and the laws. They didn't observe the Ten Commandments. None of these things. These pagans 
came along and they started receiving right relationship with God, not based on their performance and adherence to the law, but instead they received right standing with God by just simply putting faith in Jesus as having paid for their sins and, and relationship with God being available as a gift. And boy, this was super offensive to the religious Jews because again, they believed in their nationality. They believed in their adherence to the rituals and the rules and the feast days and all of these kind of things. You can see this conflict all the way through the New Testament. Like for instance, the Apostle Paul was one of these legalists that was killing Christians because he figured that they had forsaken Judaism and that they had turned away from all of the rituals. And so he was out there arresting and killing Christians and then God met him on the road to Damascus and, and a bright light blinded him and he made a commitment to the Lord and he started preaching Jesus and immediately the Lord sent him to the Gentiles, to these people that he's talking about right here, the ones who weren't living all of the rules and keeping the regulations and doing these things. And he began to start telling them that they could be born again without having to become a Jew without having to adopt all of the Jewish rituals and laws, even the Ten Commandments. He did not preach the Ten Commandments, that you had to honor the Sabbath day. Uh, I know that this is offensive to many people, what I'm saying right here, because again, the modern day church is basically a hybrid of the New Covenant. They have some of the precepts of that, but they still adhere to many of the Old Testament laws. And when you start saying that you don't have to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's some people that just come down on you as a heretic. And yet, the New Testament church, the Sabbath day is not Sunday. The Sabbath day is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And the New Testament church did not observe the Sabbath day. They lived the Sabbath relationship that Hebrews chapter 4 talked about. I've got a teaching on that entitled Our Sabbath Rest, which will go into this and show you all of these things. But Paul uh, began to start preaching that you didn't have to observe the Sabbath. You didn't have to live the ritual life and the clothes and all of the feast days. And he was telling these pagans, these people that didn't observe any of the Jewish laws whatsoever, that all they had to do was humble themselves and put faith in Jesus as their Savior. And because of that, people were being born again and the gospel was spreading. This was great news and people everywhere were being born again. And then you can read about it in the 15th chapter. Paul came to Jerusalem and all of the elders of Jerusalem, this includes Peter and James and John, the ones who were the disciples of Jesus during his physical ministry here on this earth, they were still trapped in much of the legalism of the Jewish culture. And they were afraid to break away and be criticized by the religious Jews. And uh, so Paul came and they called him and they asked him about what he was doing. He began to give testimony about the miracles that were happening. And they began to start grilling him, saying, Some people are saying that you are telling the Gentiles to forsake all of the Jewish laws and not to keep them. Paul gave a defense of what he was doing. And anyway, the, the people at Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, all of the disciples of the Lord, they came together after listening to Paul. They put out a, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a command or a writing to all of these Gentile 
Christians saying that there are some that trouble you and say that they've come from us and say that unless you be circumcised, unless you keep the face days, unless, in other words, you become a Jew and convert to Judaism, you cannot be saved. And they said that is not so. We have examined it and we believe that faith in Jesus alone is sufficient for your salvation. And so this was a major deal, even to the people who were the disciples of Jesus and walked with Him for three and a half years. The Apostle Peter spoke about this over in Second Peter chapter 3, and he said, Our beloved brother Paul writes in his epistles of some of these things that are hard to be understood, which those that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do other scriptures. Peter called Paul's writing scripture and admitted that Paul was preaching the gospel and yielded to him on this point. You can also see in the 11th chapter, the 10th and the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, that Peter was, of course, raised as a Jew, and he, he had to keep all of the rituals about the animals that were clean and unclean, the ones that you could eat and couldn't eat. And one day he was hungry, and while he was waiting to eat, they were preparing him food. He was up on the top of the house. He was praying, and he fell into a trance. And in this trance... He saw this huge sheet let down from heaven, held up by the four corners, and in it were all kinds of animals, not only the clean animals, according to the Jewish law, but unclean animals, such as pork and such as all of the shellfish, shrimp and lobster and things like that. And he saw all of these animals. And then the voice of the Lord came to him and he says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, I won't do it. He says, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And God said, what I have cleansed, don't you call common or unclean. And this vision was repeated to show that this was something that was established by God. And of course, the application of it was at that exact moment, people coming from Cornelius, one of the Roman centurions, a Gentile, had had a vision. And in this vision, the Lord told Cornelius to send men to Joppa, inquire for Peter, who was in the house of one Simon a Tanner, and he would come and tell him words whereby he could be saved. So Peter went with these men. When he entered in, here were all of these Gentiles, not only Cornelius, but he had called all of his relatives together, all of his friends together. And he says, we are here to hear words whereby we can have relationship with God. And Peter said, It is unlawful for me to be a Jew, to be in your house, to be fellowshipping with you, to be eating with you. And he says, but then he referred back to that vision, and he says, God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And so he preached the gospel to them. They got born again. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. And within a very short period of time, news of non-Jews having a relationship with God got back to the leaders in Jerusalem and they called Peter on the carpet over this. And Peter, when these people from Jerusalem came to see what was happening in Samaria, it says that Peter withdrew from Cornelius and his relatives. He had been eating with them and staying in their home. But when the religious Jews came, he separated himself, wouldn't eat with them, went back to observe the Jewish rituals. And Paul wrote about this in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 1. And it says when Peter came to Antioch, Paul rebuked him openly as being a hypocrite. 
and said, you knew the truth. God had shown you this in a vision and you ate with Cornelius and his family. And yet when the Jews came, you went back to the religious way of doing things and wouldn't separated yourself so that you would not be criticized. And Paul rebuked Peter openly for this. So anyway, the point that I'm making is that see this problem of people thinking that you've got to be holy first before God will accept you. It's not that way at all. These Gentiles who weren't keeping the laws, they weren't keeping the feast days, they hadn't been circumcised, they were not uh, converts, proselytes to the Jewish religion at all. They were still living in ways that were unacceptable by the Jewish law. And I could say the Old Testament law. It was unacceptable, yet they had obtained right standing, righteousness with God because they sought it through faith in what Jesus did. The religious Jews had rejected Jesus as being the only way. Some of them had acknowledged that Jesus was even the Messiah, but they wouldn't put their faith only in Him. They just made Him a part of the equation and they believed that not only do you have to make Jesus your Lord and make Him your Messiah, but you also have to live holy and unless you keep all of these rituals and all of these laws, God will not accept you. See, that same attitude is prevalent in religion today. There are huge numbers of Christians. There are many Christians who have truly put faith in Jesus as your Savior. And you believe if you were to die, you would go to heaven. And yet, you are maintaining your relationship with God through your adherence to all of these rules and regulations. And if you fail in any area, you let condemnation come into your life and think, God still has the power, but God would not use His power, His ability on my behalf because I'm not worthy. You know what? You've got the exact same problem that the religious Jews of Paul's day had. And what he's saying right here is just as applicable to us today as it was to the religious system that Paul lived in in that day. I'm telling you that there are people, some of you don't even realize it because it is so prevalent and it's been said and repeated so many times that you have just accepted it as being truth. But this is saying that people... You could substitute here for it says the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness. You could say that the non-religious, the people who aren't living so holy, the people who don't go to church, who don't pay their tithes, the people who are not doing all the right things, these non-religious, you could call them pagans or whatever you want to call them, which followed not after righteousness, have obtained a righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Now, there's still something that you have to do, even if you aren't a religious person, even if you've sinned greatly and you've fallen short. This doesn't mean that just because Jesus died for you, you're automatically righteous. You have to put faith in what Jesus did. You have to acknowledge that you cannot save yourself, that your goodness is not good enough to have a relationship with God. And you have to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I receive your salvation. I make you my Lord, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You have to put faith in what Jesus did. But I'm telling you, there are a lot of religious people who do not put faith in Jesus alone. They are putting faith in themselves. They might even use Jesus as a part of the equation and say, well, yes, He provided me with 10% or 20% or 50% or whatever it is, but then I also have to earn the favor of God. I also have to do things in order for God to move in my life. That cheapens what Jesus has done. You are not truly making Jesus Lord 
if you only make him Lord over just a portion of it and say, well, he provided me with my start, but now I have to maintain everything. No, it's either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Now, that's not saying that you never make a mistake, that you live perfect, but I'm saying you have to put your dependence upon him and trust in him alone and not trust in your own goodness. You know, I used this verse earlier, but let me just flip ahead to Romans chapter 11, verse 6. It says, And if by grace it is, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You know, that's wordy. Some people think, man, what does that mean? That just simply means that it's either the grace of God, you put faith in God's grace and you receive salvation by what Jesus did, or you receive salvation through your own goodness, but it cannot be a combination of the two. You cannot accept partial salvation by grace and then you've got to make up the difference and earn everything on your own goodness. It's either one or the other is what that's saying. You can't mix grace and law. It's like water and oil. They just don't mix. You can't mix the grace of God with your own goodness. Now, is this to say that there's no reason for you to live holy? You are supposed to maintain good works because it helps you in your relationship with people. It, it closes a door to the devil, etc. There are reasons to live holy, but you cannot relate to God based on your goodness. And if you are feeling rejected by God, condemned by God, if you're frustrated in your relationship with God, then I can guarantee you somehow or another you are trusting in your own goodness. You haven't yet moved over into the gospel and putting total faith in Jesus. And this is offensive to the religious people, just like it was in Paul's day. In verse 21, it says, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. You know, both people desired relationship with God. The pagans might have been doing it through worshiping idols. They thought that that's the way to have a relationship with God. In, the, in Ephesus, where Paul ministered, and there was a great temple there to Diana of the Ephesians, they actually had priestesses. There are over a thousand priestesses in Ephesus that had sex with the people that came to the temple, the men. And that's the way that they supposedly worshipped this great image of Diana of the Ephesians. If you've ever seen one of those uh, pictures of this idol, uh, she had, I don't even know, but it was dozens of breasts all over her. She was, and it was just a sexual uh, God and there were people that actually worshipped and they were trying to reach God through all these sensual, carnal ways. Well, there are people today that are trying to reach God, like the religious Jews of this day. They were they were seeking after righteousness, it says, but they were seeking after the law of righteousness. They were trying to become into right standing with God through their own performance and not through what Jesus had done. And it says here that that kind of thing, it does not work. You do not obtain. You can never become righteous in right standing with God by you adhering to laws and, and committing that you're going to live holy and do these things. I know I'm popping some of y'all's bubble because you really believe that you can obtain that. I can tell you, any person who believes that you can obtain right standing with God through your own performance, you're relatively new at it. What I mean by that is that if you really have that mindset, you might for a year or two 
Start making progress. Maybe you used to be a doper. You used to be an uh, alcoholic, a, a homosexual, a uh, adulterer, or, you know, any number of different things. And you can sit there and you can begin to start changing and stop this and stop that. But I can guarantee you, you can overcome some of these outward things, but you will never be able to overcome every single thing. And not only your actions, but the thoughts of your heart. Jesus revealed that if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. If you hate a person, then you've committed murder. You're guilty of murder. You might be able to restrain some of the actions, but you cannot overcome sin and the desire for sin on your own. You can never do it by the law. So any person who has tried this, you might try it for a few years, but eventually those are the kind of people that get frustrated and wind up falling away from the Lord. And it's not because they don't believe God exists. It's just that they can never measure up. I'm telling you, you are never going to find right standing with God through the law. You have to humble yourself and just throw yourself on the mercy of God and receive right standing with God as a gift. Because God is a good God, not because you're a good person. You know, many people who are going to church and doing all of the things that they should do, those things are good. But if you are putting your faith in those things and thinking that that somehow or another makes you more acceptable to God than the person who doesn't go to church and doesn't do all of these things, then when you start talking about a person being totally cleansed of all sin and given the righteousness of God, not based on their performance but as a gift, this becomes offensive to the religious person because it makes them think, well, so you're saying that all of my goodness and all of the things that I'm doing don't make me any better than, the, than this old sinner over here? That's exactly what I'm saying. It doesn't make God love you any more. And if you live badly, it doesn't make God love you any less. And to the religious person whose faith is in their performance, that is very offensive. So I believe that this is one way you can tell whether or not you are a legalist or whether or not you're walking with God by faith in what He's done for you. Are you offended when you do all of these things and then somebody else comes along and gets healed? are receives from God and they haven't been near as holy. And if you are offended saying, God, why did you heal them and not me? It's because your faith is in yourself. You know, I've heard, uh, I've, I've heard this many times that somebody in church, you know, some, somebody's been going to church and paying their tithes and they, they never miss a service and they do all of these things. And then some drunk comes in off the street, gets born again and just instantly healed of the exact same thing that dear old saint so-and-so has been struggling with for five years and the immediate response is, why did God heal them and not me? And whether they say it or not, it's because I am living holy and they are thinking that somehow or another their holiness makes them more acceptable to God. I'm telling you, the only reason that any of us are acceptable to God is because we have put faith in Jesus and we have received right standing with God through faith in Jesus, not through yourself. Now, there are other reasons for you to go to church and pay your tithes and live holy and do these things, but it's not so that you can earn relationship with God. It softens your heart towards God when you live holy. When you keep your mind stayed upon Him, Isaiah 26, 3 says, He will keep you in perfect peace when your mind is stayed upon Him. It doesn't make God have more love and peace towards you, but it'll make you have more peace because you're thinking about the goodness of God and all that He's done for you. It also closes a door on the devil. 
I dealt with that in Romans chapter 6 and showed in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you go out and yield yourself to sin, God is still going to love you. He loves you because you put faith in a Savior and you have relationship, right? Standing with God through what Jesus did, not through what you do. But if you go out and live in sin, you just throw the door open wide to the devil. And John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. If you throw the door open to the devil, he's as a roaring lion. First Peter chapter 5 says, Going about seeking whom he may devour. He's going to come in and eat your lunch and pop the bag. You will suffer if you live in sin. So yes, you should live holy. Yes, you should go to church because it changes your heart towards God. But the, the book of Romans, the New Testament, clearly teaches that you have righteousness, relationship with God, because of faith in Jesus, not because of faith in yourself and trust in yourself. There is a faith righteousness versus a law righteousness. The righteousness that comes by the law. And the only person that ever earned relationship with God by keeping the law is Jesus. Every one of us besides Jesus, everyone outside of Jesus has to have a Savior. Jesus is our Savior. But you cannot save yourself. And that's what these verses are talking about. It goes on to say in verse 32, it says, Why is this the way it is? Because they, talking about the religious people, sought it not by faith, but as it was by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And then it begins to talk about Jesus. using an Old Testament prophecy and says, As it is written... Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. If you put faith in Jesus and make him your Savior, he is the best thing that ever happened to you. But if you still persist in trying to earn right standing with God, then Jesus becomes a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. In other words, Jesus, God planted Jesus in the path of every one of us. And you either have to humble yourself and receive Him as your Savior, put your faith in Him, or if you try and go around Him or over Him and use Him as only a portion of your relationship with God, and yet you still have to be worthy, then you stumble, you trip and fall over Him. And that is the very, Jesus is the very thing that will ultimately condemn you if you don't abandon yourself to total faith in Him. So he goes on. Remember that chapter 10 was put in here by the translators. They divided this into chapter and verse. There's nothing wrong with that. It helps us reference things. It's so that we can all turn and read the same thing. But this does not mean it's a new thought. It doesn't mean that he's changed his uh, point that he's making. This is still the same thing. It follows immediately after what he said about Jesus being a stumbling stone. And then he said in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And then he begins to start uh, showing you that they do not have a relationship with God. These are talking about the religious Jews who were still trusting in their genealogy and in their observance of the feast days and Jewish rituals, and they thought that that's what was going to grant them salvation. 
And he's saying they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge, and therefore they are not accepted with God. They are not going to go to heaven. So here's another way of saying this, that there are religious people today who are actually seeking to have God's acceptance, but not obtaining it, not because they don't have the desire for it, but because they aren't seeking it properly. They are trying to earn relationship with God instead of receive it as a gift. And I'm telling you that this is happening today. We have millions and millions and millions of religious people inside the Christian church and then outside of the body of Christ, outside of the religious church, we have all these other religions. Many of them are very zealous and they are wanting a relationship with God, but they're going about it the wrong way. And what this says is that those who say that there's many paths unto God, and it doesn't really matter whether you are a Christian or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever. As long as you believe that there's a God and as long as you do your best and follow the, the uh, commands and the uh, instructions of that religion, that all paths lead to God. That is an absolute lie. Paul is contradicting that right here. He says they have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge and therefore they would be rejected. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus isn't a way. He is the way. He is the only way unto God the Father. These people who say Jesus was a great example, He showed the world how to turn the other cheek and how to love and how to lay His life down. And even other religions admit that. You know, the Muslims admit Jesus was a prophet and they talk about Him as being an example. Every religion on the planet has had to deal with Jesus because he's the focal point. Nobody has impacted the world the way that Jesus had. So other religions will acknowledge him, but again, they acknowledge him as a way, as a example, not the example. But Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. By Jesus saying that, then you can't say he's a good man and a great example. Jesus claimed to be it. He claimed to be the only way unto God. And either he misrepresented things or if he is true and if he is this great example that everybody talks about, then Jesus left no alternative for other methods. I don't care how zealous you are, how much you desire relationship with God. You cannot obtain it through your goodness, through adherence to some uh, creed or some doctrine. You have to make Jesus your Savior. And some people think, well, boy, you're narrow-minded. I'm just minded according to what the Word of God says right here. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, is saying the same thing. So let's go back and read this. Brethren, I count not my... I mean, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Boy, there are some awesome truths that he's presenting right here. One of the things is Paul is showing that there are two types of righteousness. He says, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is perfect. It's holy. 
It's not a comparative righteousness. Religion, anytime religion starts preaching that you've got to be holy, you've got to do this, this and this, and unless you live right, God won't bless you, God won't love you, God won't answer your prayers. Anytime they start preaching a law of righteousness, they have to make it a comparative thing because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says that. Every person who has ever breathed on this planet has sinned and not only sinned in the past, but we still continue to sin. Because sin is not only the transgression of a direct command, but sin is when we know to do good and don't do it to Him that is sin. The Scripture says that just as plainly. So sin is not only when you go out and transgress a law, but sin is when God tells you to love other people and you don't do it. Sin is when God tells you that you need to serve God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, and you don't do it. You only give Him part. We all continually sin. So we've not only sinned in the past, we've sinned in the present, and we are going to sin in the future. We are going to fail to be less than perfect. And any time people go to preaching that you've got to be righteous for God to love you, they have to make it a comparative righteousness because none of us are perfect. So they have to start saying, well, you know, you, you've got to quit these big ten. I think it's the Catholic Church that has this about the cardinal sins, sins that are unforgivable and then others that, you know, you can go to confession and you can get those forgiven. But in the Bible, it says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. In the Bible, there is no such thing as comparative righteousness a, uh, you know, God grading on a curve. Nobody's going to be perfect. So God has to just take the people who do the best they can and He will make up the difference. No, it says that if you are going about to establish your own righteousness, that's a self-righteousness, a righteousness which is based on your conformity to some standard of conduct. If you are going about to establish your own righteousness, you are not submitting yourselves unto the righteousness of God. God righteousness, which is perfect and holy and pure, that comes only by putting faith in what Jesus did. Faith righteousness and law righteousness are opposites. You cannot operate in both for the purpose of acceptance. It has to be one or the other. I used that verse yesterday in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. It's either grace or it's works, but it's not a combination of the two. You cannot establish or have an established relationship with God based on what God did for you plus what you were doing for God. It ha your faith has to be totally in a righteousness that comes from God. Now, does this mean that therefore it doesn't matter whether we live holy or not? No, this talks about two types of righteousness. There is this self-righteousness that is based on your actions which is totally inadequate to obtain relationship with God. And then there is a righteousness that comes from God. You are made the righteousness of God. In, sec in um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Your born-again spirit is created righteous. You don't become righteous. You don't grow into it. You don't earn it. You are just made that way the moment you get born again. That new nature comes from God 
perfect and holy and pure, not based on what you've done, but based on what you received by faith in Jesus. But does that mean that we don't go ahead and live holy? No, because you need self-righteousness in order to relate to people and also to keep the devil at bay and keep him from having entrance into your life. Now see, there's a ditch on both sides of this road. There are some people that preach you've got to be holy and they just preach this law and legalism which totally violates everything that Paul was talking about right here. But then there's some people who say, well, then it's not according to my work, so therefore it doesn't matter whether I live holy, it doesn't matter what I do. And they just forsake a self-righteousness. They forsake trying to live holy and live godly, thinking it doesn't matter because God is going to relate to me based on Jesus. And that's true, but you aren't only dealing with God. You are dealing with people. You're dealing with the devil. You know, if you were to take what I'm teaching about the righteousness that comes from God by faith, and if you draw a conclusion from that, that it doesn't matter what I do because God's going to love me. You could go out and rob a bank and say, God loves me, I'm righteous because I made Jesus my Savior. And if you were truly born, first of all, if you're truly born again, I don't believe that your attitude would be, how much can I get by with? Over in... uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Every man that has this hope in him, the hope of being like Jesus, purifies himself even as he is pure. If you are truly born again, you want to live for God. Now, you might be doing a poor job of it because religion actually weakens you and strengthens sin. So there's many reasons why Christians don't live holy. But if you are truly born again, you want to live for God. A person who would just take what I'm saying about God loving you and you could go rob a bank and God would still love you and you think, man, great news. I'm going to get born again and then I'm going to go do whatever I want to and God loves me. I don't think you ever got born again. Your heart's never been changed. You don't have this desire. You don't want to purify yourself. So if you, first of all, if you were truly born again, I believe that there would be a knowing on the inside that robbing a bank, that committing adultery, all of these kind of things are wrong and you wouldn't want to do it. But if you did it and if you were truly born again, I believe that Christians can do things like rob a bank that can treat other people badly and stuff. If you do it, God is going to still love you, but there are consequences to your actions. And I guarantee you, if they catch you, you will go to jail. And as you sit in your jail cell thinking about, man, God loves me. I'm righteous because of what Jesus did. It'll be absolutely true. But you will be in that jail cell. And you will have to spend years there until you have been judged for your sin. There are consequences to your sin. So it's important for you to have this self-righteousness. You know, I've not done some of the things that other people have done. I've never gone out and committed adultery and done all those kind of things. And as far as my relationship with God, that doesn't make God love me one ounce more than a person who's a murderer, an adulterer, or whatever. God loves me just the same as He loves anybody else. It's by grace. He doesn't look at me and say, oh, you didn't need as much love. You were really lovely on your own. I guarantee you, it takes mercy for God to love me. I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm still not the person I need to be. And so God loves me by grace. 
So does that mean it just I'm free to go do whatever? No, because I have lived holy, I don't have some of the memories, some of the hurts and pains. I don't have some of the people that are mad at me that may be mad at you with justification. I may not be dealing with you know, a background that keeps me from getting employed because I got a prison record because I've got that. There's all kinds of consequences that come from sin. And I praise God that I have had some self-righteousness. It helps me in my dealing with people. It keeps me out of trouble. It makes people trust me and things like this because they see that I've got some integrity. But you know what? I'm still not perfect in any of these areas. And when it comes to my relationship with God, I cannot approach God on the basis of any of my goodness. I have to just humble myself and submit myself to the righteousness which is of God by faith. And that's what this is talking about. There are two types of righteousness. And the scripture here makes this very clear. You need both, but only one type will get you relationship with God. And that is obtained by faith in what Jesus did. It's a faith righteousness that comes as a gift. Now let me go back and read verses 1 through 4. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Again, there is so much in these verses. I'm just picking and choosing. I'm not saying everything that's here. But I made this point that just a person being sincere and saying, well, I'm seeking God and I believe that that's enough. It's not enough. Paul is acknowledging that there are people who have a zeal for God. This isn't just a knowledge of God, but they actually have a zeal for God and they are wanting right standing with God, but they are mistaken in thinking that they can earn it based on their performance. And he's saying that's insufficient. To be sincere is, wrong, is not enough. You could drink uh, poison thinking it's water and you could be totally sincere, but you will be sincerely dead. You have to do things the way that it's prescribed and God revealed Himself and God is the one that set up the method of salvation. And did you realize this? That Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth that has a Savior. There isn't the concept of a Savior in any other religion. Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Taoists, anything you want to talk about, it, they acknowledge that there is some some concept of God, even the Muslims acknowledge the God of Abraham. The Jews acknowledge the God of Abraham. Did you know that Abraham was the father of the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians? They all acknowledge many of these same things, but every other religion on the face of the earth puts the burden of salvation upon you. You have to earn salvation by adhering to their laws and to their principles. But true Christianity, now sad to say, a lot of Christianity basically has that same mentality and they, they say you got to be good and do all of these things to be accepted by God. But true Christianity preaches, no, we have a Savior that we could never save ourselves. We could never be holy enough and so God sent His Son. He paid the debt that we couldn't pay. You couldn't ever pay enough 
to uh, atone for all of your sins. So Jesus atoned for it. Jesus paid. And all you got to do is make him your savior. And if he is your savior, then you get into heaven. You get into right relationship with God based on what Jesus did and not what you do. We are the only religion on the planet that has that concept. No other religion has this. What a huge distinction between Christianity and any other religion. And it is the distinguishing characteristic. It's what makes life awesome. As it says in Romans chapter 5, being justified by faith in what Jesus did for us is how we have peace with God. The only way that you can have peace is to have a Savior. That it's His goodness that makes you accepted with God. If the burden is on your back, if you have to earn salvation, there is no peace. Because even if you did good yesterday and do good today, tomorrow is a brand new day and you could blow the whole thing and there's no way for you to relax and just rest. The only way that you can rest and have peace with God is when you have a Savior. So these are people who were zealous for God, but they were going about to earn God's blessing through submitting to their own righteousness. That's what it says in verse 3. They being ignorant of God's righteousness that comes by a gift and going about to establish their own righteousness which comes through their performance have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You cannot be submitted to faith righteousness and law righteousness at the same time. You cannot be trying to accept part of it by grace and part of it by law. And then look at this in verse 4. This is such a strong statement. I wonder how do people miss this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That's just a clear statement. You cannot be righteous in right standing with God through your observance of law, rules, regulations. It's the end of it. The Old Testament law had a purpose. But that purpose wasn't for justification. It was to show you your sin. And so the law still has a purpose. And if you want to use the law to show people that you think you're righteous, you think you're so holy that God has to accept you, let me show you God's standard of holiness. And it is beyond human ability to attain unto. The purpose of the law was to shut your mouth to make you guilty, make you stand condemned before God so that you would recognize that it's impossible for you to ever obtain salvation based on your own and it would drive you to your knees to cry out to God for mercy. And the moment you cry out for mercy and put your faith in Jesus who died for your sins, then you're accepted and you get a faith righteousness not based on performance. This is what this is saying. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And then he begins to start quoting from Moses. I believe that this is from Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. And Moses, it says, describe the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. In other words, if you want to start trying to earn right standing with God, it's an all or nothing thing. You can't just do the best you can and say, well, God, I did the best I can. Will you accept me? You either have to make 100 on this test or if you make 99.9, you fail. You, you miss. You go to hell. I've used this verse many times, James 2.10. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you are going to submit to the law, Moses described 
what it took under the law. You had to do it perfectly. And of course, nobody could. So the law, even though it dangled salvation and said, if you will do this and this and this and this and this, God will accept you. It, it was impossible for anybody to ever fulfill that. So the law really wasn't for you to fulfill. It was to show you how incapable of fulfilling the law you ever were so that it would make you turn from self-righteousness and turn to this faith righteousness. And Moses made that point even over in the book of Leviticus. In verse 6 it says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. Now these are quotations, again, from Moses. Now, it added a little part here in parentheses in both of these, but it's showing you that even under the Old Testament law, it was prophesied that nobody could ever keep the law. Moses said, what does it take to be right with God? He says, say not in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That's talking about, do you have to be so holy that you could get to heaven through your own good works, that you could ascend there? No, if you, if you think that, well then in a sense you are canceling out the fact that God sent Jesus to us. We don't have to reach Him. He reached us. He came to us knowing that we were totally incapable of ever earning relationship with Him. So if you are trying to earn your way to heaven, then you are canceling out what Jesus did because Jesus came to give salvation as a gift, not as a payment. And then the next verse, it says, Who shall ascend into the deep? And it says in parentheses, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. In other words, there's some people that don't think you can ever be good enough to reach God, but they believe that they can repent. They can humble themselves. They can punish themselves enough that God will finally accept them. And by doing that, that in a sense is bringing up Christ again from the dead. They are denying the fact that Jesus died and suffered your punishment. You don't have to earn your way to heaven, nor do you have to spend your entire time repenting and groveling in the dirt and somehow or another punishing yourself to appease an angry God. Jesus came down from heaven so you don't have to ascend up there. Jesus went to hell, paid for your sins so that you do not have to pay for sins, and you just accept it. And see, even Moses said this. These are quotations from the Old Testament. You know, I've literally met a man one time who rolled up his pants legs and then rolled up his sleeves on his uh, shirt and showed me scars on his knees and on his elbows and told me that he, he was a Mexican guy and he came from Mexico. And in Mexico, during Lent season, they do things in the Catholic Church. I'm not against Catholics. There's Christians who are Catholics, but... The Catholic system, there are things wrong. In the U.S., it's not quite this extreme, but in Mexico, they literally crucify themselves. They do these things as penance. And there's some people who die in crucifixion thinking that somehow or another this will atone for their sins. That's a slap in the face of Jesus saying that what He did dying for them wasn't enough. They've got to add their suffering to it. There's other people who get crucified, but then they take them down before they die and they're able to recover. This man that I was talking about literally crawled three miles on his hands and knees over broken pieces of glass to do penance for his sins. 
And some people think, well, that's extreme. You don't have to do that. But there's groups right here in the United States who during Lent season have to afflict themselves, have to give up something, have to punish themselves in some way. But I can guarantee you the vast majority of people who give up something and do these things, they do it because they feel like that they are appeasing God. See my sacrifice, now will you accept me? And I'm telling you, that is an insult against Jesus. You're saying that His sacrifice isn't enough. If you want to do that for discipline, because you say, man, I need to be focused on God. This will change my heart towards Him. If you want to go on a fast because your body has been dominating you and you say, I am going to bring under my body and not let it control me, as Paul talked about. If you want to do it as discipline, that's one thing. But I can guarantee you, I've been there myself and I know many, many, many people who thought that you had to earn God's anointing and power by giving up something, by doing all of these things to make yourself worthy. I actually at one time, back in the very beginning, when God called me to preach, I, I was so introverted that I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. And so it was a huge, huge step for me to start standing in front of people and talking. It just went against everything that was in me. And I knew that unless God anointed me, I was dead because, man, in myself, I cannot do what I'm doing. And so I made a deal with God that I would fast and that I would pray. I made, a, I made a commitment to God that I would fast a minimum of two weeks before I ever stood up to preach. And some people think, well, that's a good desire. That's stupid. That's saying that Jesus didn't already provide this, that Jesus doesn't anoint me by grace, but I have to earn it and I have to make myself holy. Now, if I want to fast just for discipline so that I could keep my mind stayed on the Lord, that's a different thing. But you know, that was a foolish commitment. Now, I minister, I minister an average probably of 25 to 30 times a week. If I was to keep this commitment that I'm going to fast two weeks before every time I preached, I'd be plumb gone by now. I'd be dead. It's totally un undoable. Plus, the whole mentality behind it, I thought that somehow or another this was going to make me worthy in the sight of God. And all it did was make me hungry. And all it did, I was not submitted unto the righteousness that came by God. I was trying to earn His blessing and anointing. Now I've come to realize, like it says over in first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that He that hath anointed us and sealed us is God. When God called me to preach, He anointed me. He would be unjust to call me to do something and then expect me to do it on my own power. Anytime God says, come, like He did to Peter, then there's enough power in that one word to fulfill what God called you to do. There is an anointing. There is an ability. And God has already anointed me. As Jesus said when He stood in the synagogue in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me, past tense, to preach the gospel to the poor, etc. And that's the way that a minister should minister. Instead of getting in the back room before the service and saying, oh God, please anoint me. You need to believe that when God called you that He anointed you. He has anointed you. And you need to put faith in what He has said about you, that He has qualified you, that He counted you faithful 
putting you into the ministry, First Peter chapter, First Timothy chapter one. You need to put faith in that and just appropriate these things by faith, not by your works and by your uh, bartering with God. That I'll fast if you will give me this. That's wrong. And this is what he's talking about. You don't have to ascend into heaven through your own good works. Jesus has already come down for you. You don't have to pay for your own sins. You don't have to grovel in the dirt. Just humble yourself and accept that even though you don't deserve the blessings of God, He's already given it to you. He commended His love towards you in that while you were yet a sinner, He died for you, Romans 5, 8. Just accept it and receive it based on what Jesus did. And then live holy as a byproduct of relationship with God, not as a stepping stone to relationship with God. Boy, those are huge. And he goes on to say in verse 8, this is Romans 10, 8, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. Now in the Old Testament quotation, it just ends right there. This is what Moses said. He says, you don't have to ascend into heaven. You don't have to go down to hell and pay for your own sins. But what, what do you have to do? It's the word of faith which we preach. And then he just stopped right there. But in the New Testament right here, it says, that is the word, or excuse me, Moses ended by saying, the word is nigh thee, even in thy heart and in thy mouth, and period. He just stopped right there. But Paul added to it in this Romans chapter 10, verse 8, that is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, he expanded on this and says, what was Moses saying? That it's just faith. It's believing on Jesus that grants you right standing with God, not your performance, not your conformity to some standard. You know, this is just so plain. If words mean anything, which they do, these verses right here should totally unravel your religious traditions and doctrines of man that have made us performance-oriented. And it ought to make us dependent upon Jesus and only faith in Him. But, you know, I hate to say it, but there are so many people that they just don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. They're going to, well, this is not what I've been taught. This is not what I think. And so they just cherry pick and choose the parts that they like and reject this. I'm telling you, this is the Word of God. If the Word of God has any authority in your life, any dominance over you, then you ought to humble yourself and you ought to say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for sitting there and trying to earn what you've already given. Forgive me for trying to pay for what has already been paid for. Help me to humble myself. Help me to receive this revelation of the grace of God. That's the appropriate response to all of this message. And even the Old Testament law, Moses, who was the law giver and the one who wrote down all of these laws and commandments, Moses, right here in these verses that were quoted from. Moses prophesied the end of the law that he put into effect. Just like it says right here, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Moses prophesied that. Moses realized, it says over in Peter that these people prophesied and they earnestly sought and diligently looked for the day that they were prophesying about. They didn't live in it. They didn't have the grace of God revealed under the old covenant. And these people knew that there was something better. And they longed for our days, what it says over there in Peter. And then verse 9 says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart 
that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know, this is a verse that I use a lot when I'm leading people to receive salvation. And this is kind of the culmination of the first nine chapters and all of the things that he's been saying. So what is, what is the word of faith that we preach? Here it is in a nutshell, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now there's more to it than just saying those words. When you say Lord Jesus, this means you are submitting yourself to Him. You are no longer trusting yourself. You aren't trusting your own righteousness. You aren't trusting the fact that God, I'm a good person. I believe you're going to accept me. But no, you make Him your Lord. You know, for you to make somebody else, to give them this authority in their life, you are submitting yourself to Him. You are saying, I'm inferior to you. You have the superior authority. You cannot come and make Jesus Lord and still trust in yourself at the same time. This is talking about a rejection of your own self-righteousness and a receiving of faith uh, faith righteousness, a righteousness that comes through putting faith in what Jesus did. You make Jesus your Lord. This doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again because you can't do that. You will fail. If, if you don't break a, a written commandment, well, then you will fail to do all of the good that God commanded you to do, such as love your neighbor as yourself, such as uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church or reverence your husband the way that the church reverences Christ. None of us do those things perfectly. So we all fail. When you, you say you're making Jesus Lord, it doesn't mean that you're saying, God, I'll, I'll never be wrong again. I'm going to serve you and obey everything you say. But you have to be willing to do that. You have to be desiring to follow Him and to trust in Him completely and quit trusting in yourself. So you have to be willing to make Him Lord. And you have to believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. You know, I was over in Ireland one time. Or excuse me, this was in Wales. It was on a trip where I went to Ireland. But actually we were in Wales, in Betsy Coyd, Wales. And we had a group of people with us. And we were, uh, Don Francisco was singing with his guitar and drawing a crowd. And then we had uh, people that were on this tour that were going through the crowd and talking to people about their relationship with the Lord and trying to get them to commit their lives to the Lord. And uh, I just happened to be standing there and I heard one of the guys behind me witnessing to a woman and he says, you need to be born again. And she didn't understand what being born again was. So he tried to explain it. And she says, well, what do I have to do? And he quoted this verse. And he says, you have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. And this woman told him, says, I don't believe Jesus did rise from the dead. I believe he was a good man, but I believe he was a man. He died and he's dead. I don't believe Jesus is alive from the dead. And this man who was trying to witness to her, he says, well, just say it. You don't have to believe it. Just say it. And he was so intent on trying to get her to repeat a prayer after him that it didn't matter whether she believed it or not. Just say these words and it'll work for you. And I stopped him. I turned around right then and I stopped and I said, you know, this is not right. You do have to believe it. This says in the next verse, I'm going to come back to verse 9, but he says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
This is saying that you have to believe this in your heart and speak it with your mouth. It's not one or the other. It's not just you repeating a prayer and if you will say these words, they're magic and instantly you receive a relationship with God. No, you have to say it, but then you have to also believe it with your heart. It's a combination of the two. See, if you don't believe with your heart the things that you're saying with your mouth, then it loses its power. But when you say it with your mouth and believe it in your heart is when the power is released. So back to verse 9, you have to make Jesus your Lord. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. You are yielding to Him and trusting His righteousness, not yours. You have to believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And that implies many things, but one of those things is that He wasn't just human. This was God manifest in the flesh, as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The only time God was ever manifest in the flesh was in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus was God. The angels worshipped Him and proclaimed Him Lord at His birth in Luke chapter 1, chapter 2. And so you have to believe that He was raised from the dead, implying that He is God. Jesus himself said, I have power in myself to come back from the dead. God gave him this authority and power and he overcame death. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ isn't risen, then your faith is void and you are yet in your sins. The resurrection from the dead is the proof that everything Jesus taught was true. Jesus is alive today. And if you don't believe that, And if you just somehow or another come to Christianity and you're going to make Jesus an example, but you aren't going to make Him God who conquered death and is alive and it's seated at the right hand of God and comes and lives on the inside of a person. If you don't accept Him as being God, risen from the dead, you cannot be saved. You have to believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead And if you do that, if you make Him your Lord, trust in what He did for you and believe He is God, risen from the dead, and is now reigning, Jesus is Lord of all, then you shall be saved. It's that simple. Do you know the thief on the cross? He reviled Jesus and mocked Him, but then he saw Jesus turn around in mercy and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he saw so much God in Jesus that he finally said, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't have time to go join church, to be water baptized, to dedicate himself, to start studying the Bible, to pray an hour a day, to do any of these things. He just called out and said, Lord, have mercy upon me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. By doing that, by calling him Lord, he did what this says right here. He made Jesus his Lord. He recognized his superiority and he humbled himself and received what Jesus was doing for him. And he believed. And because of that, Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And you know what? That man received because he did these things. It's not based on your performance. It's just based on you making him Lord and believing in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. It comes through the heart and through belief, not through performance. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You have to believe what you say you believe in your heart enough that you act on it. You don't have to be perfect in it, but you do have to act on it. Faith without works is dead.
You know, if you were here with me right now, if there was a group of people right here, and if I came running in and I said, the building's on fire, we're all going to die, we got to get out of here now. If you said that you believe that, and if you could just sit there and say, well, I believe Andrew, I don't believe Andrew would lie to me. I believe that the building's on fire, I'm going to die if I don't get out of here. And yet you sit there, then you don't really believe what I say. You might mouth those words, but if you really believe that your life was in danger, it would motivate you to act. Now, there can be different actions. Some people might scream. Some people might panic. Some people might faint. Other people might try to put the fire out. Other people might run. And, you know, there could be different reactions, but if you really believe something, there is going to be accompanying action. It's not the action that saves you. It's faith that saves you. And that's the point that Paul had been making throughout the entire book of Romans. But now he says you've got to believe this from the heart to the degree that you're willing to confess it with your mouth. You've got to act on it. So there is, a, there is a relationship between your actions and your belief. But it is your belief that saves you, not your actions. But if you truly believe something, there needs to be accompanying actions. In verse 11, it says, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In verse 12, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice he didn't say, Whosoever will promise that you'll never sin again, and will promise that you're going to change, that you'll never do this, that you'll live holy, that you'll make restitution. That you'll... He didn't do any of that. He just said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, and it's implied in this context, in faith, enough that you're willing to confess it with your mouth, you shall be saved. You know, here's an example that will help you to understand what I'm talking about. If somehow or another you could imagine that you died right this moment, and if you went and stood before God, and if God was to come up to you and says, what makes you worthy to enter into heaven? The only answer that would gain you access is nothing I've done makes me worthy, but I made Jesus my Lord. I have a Savior, and it's because of my faith in Him that I believe that I will enter into heaven. That's the only answer that would get you into heaven. If you started saying, but wait, I, I've, I, I'm a good person. And I've paid my tithes. See my attendance stickers and you could give your giving record. And if you start pointing to what you do and start saying, but I've done this and I've done this, I believe that I should be welcomed into heaven. Then you know what? You would be rejected because your faith is in yourself. You are basing it on a works, a law righteousness, not a faith righteousness. See, these verses say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord in faith, Trusting what Jesus did, you shall be saved. Man, that's powerful. And it says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe of Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And it goes on to say, well, let me just read this. In verse 15, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? In other words, you've got to share the truth with people 
for them to be able to receive. But just because you share the truth doesn't mean they're instantly going to receive. Even Isaiah prophesied and said not everyone's going to believe and receive. Verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes through hearing the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth doesn't make you free, period. It's the truth you know that makes you free. If you don't hear the truth, you cannot have faith to believe and receive. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that's the reason that I go to so much effort teaching. And you know, I'm not here to compare myself with other people. I'm just trying to explain how important I believe that this is. And this is why that within seconds of our program coming on, you hear me teaching. We don't go through all of these introductions and show you all of these other things. Our program is devoted by and large, the vast, vast, vast majority of it, to just teaching the Word. And then when we give things at the end of the program, it's because I believe that you could get more benefit out of these materials when you could sit down and study it in depth and go into even more detail than I've done. So really, the whole program is just uh, about trying to get the Word, truth, to people because it's the truth that sets people free. And yet I believe that there's a lot of people today that you know, again, I'm not, here, I'm not anybody's judge. I can barely take care of myself, much less other people. But as I flip through the television and watch other people, there's many other ministers that it's all smoke and mirrors. And they're talking about traditions and they're, they're showing things and they're, they're doing things. And I wonder, why in the world are you even on television? You aren't preaching the Word. It's the Word that's going to set people free. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. This is why it is so important for us to go. You know, this is why we spend so much effort putting all of this effort into our Caris Bible College because we are just saturating people in the Word of God. Do I claim that I understand everything perfectly? Do I claim that I've got the only revelation on God that there is? No. But I can guarantee you what I do know has totally transformed my life and has transformed the lives of other people. And to the best of my ability, I'm trying to instill the things that have worked for me and have shown me the goodness of God into other people. And as we do it, we see the Word just transforming them, just like this says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so this is the reason we put such an emphasis on the Word. This is why that's our total focus. I know that there's some people that think I'm overzealous uh, with the Word. I've had some people criticize me and say, man, you just are too strict and too ad adhering to the Word too much. I don't think you can be too committed to the Word of God. Man, this is the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, the words that I speak unto you, they are truth. And so we've got to speak the truth, the Word of God. And it's only the truth we know that's going to set us free. And so I'm just focused on this. This is why I've taught on this book of Romans is because Paul taught truths here that have literally changed the world. I told you over in Romans chapter 3 that it was Romans chapter 3, I believe, verse 28 that sparked the Protestant Reformation and has made a huge impact on the world the Industrial Revolution, the Renaissance, all of these kind of things were sparked by the gospel. 
setting people free from the religious traditions and bondage that the church had fallen into during the Middle Ages. It has transformed the world. And yet we need another gospel revolution. We need another reformation because the church today isn't preaching this same gospel. And so I'm putting this truth out there and sharing these things, believing that this could just totally, totally transform your life. It certainly has mine. And so this is what Paul is talking about. If you are one of those today that as we've studied through the book of Romans, you just come to the place, you know what, I'm not sure that if God was to ask me what makes me worthy, I'm not sure I'd point to Jesus. I think maybe I'd probably start trying to justify myself and talk about my own goodness. You know, if that's you, then either you aren't saved or if you've been saved, you're like Paul talked about in the book of Galatians, you've turned back unto this legalism and you need to get back to where your faith is only in Jesus. I tell you, this is a critical area. This is something, there's a lot of people today, I believe, that are proclaiming that they're Christians. They think they're Christians and they aren't. If you were to ask them what makes them worthy, they would immediately point to themselves. Their faith is not in Jesus. It is in a law righteousness, not in a faith righteousness. And I'm telling you that that's useless. Either you aren't born again and you need to truly be born again, or if you are born again, you've returned. You know, like the scripture talks about the dog that returns to its vomit. You've gone back to the very thing that Jesus redeemed you from, and that's the reason that things aren't working in your life. I'm not saying any of these things to hurt people, but I'm saying it to tell you the truth. It's the truth that sets you free, but it's only the truth you know that sets you free. There is a deception in people today thinking that they're okay with God because they are a relatively moral person. I'm telling you, God doesn't accept you based on your relative goodness to anybody else. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need a Savior and these verses that I've read today are how you accept that Savior. You just confess Him as your Lord. You put faith in what He did. You believe He's raised from the dead, that He is God Almighty, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And if you believe and confess with your mouth, you will be saved, separate from your holiness and any worthiness. You just accept it as a gift. You could humble yourself and pray right now and receive salvation as a gift and not as a reward for your goodness. Man, that's important. You know, I pray that right now you just would pray something similar to this. Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. I believe that you raised him from the dead. I now confess him as my Lord. Jesus, I make you Lord over my life. I trust you and what you've done. And I receive salvation as a gift. You don't have to say those exact words, but if you say something similar to that and mean it from your heart, you could be born again. Man, that's good news. That's nearly too good to be true news.